before I begin the sermon, I just want to mention that while we were singing this last song, I'm, I'm sitting there singing, and I'm kind of torn, because I realize, yes, on the one hand, I'm worshiping God. I, I, I love, I'm, I'm loving God. I'm seeing God's goodness, but I'm reminded of David's psalm, his request, where he says, God, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to worship you. And I recognize that it's not until I see Jesus face to face that I'm going to have a united heart. But we can worship him now. And our worship of him can actually grow as we realize that God loves us and God works in us as messed up as we are. We return today to our sermon series on loving others from Romans chapters 12 to 15. And the topic today is so timely because of what is going on in our country and our world. Now, as I mentioned in the prayer of confession, remember that the story of the Bible is the story of God choosing to love a rebellious people like you and me and of God invading the world in the person of Jesus to reconcile us to him and to himself. And God's love is a radical, self-giving love. So as we look at this series on loving others, that's the kind of love God wants us to use, to have, to exercise, is this self-giving love. Now, as we looked at Romans 12, we saw first that one of the ways that we serve God and obey God is by loving and serving others. And God calls us to do that in a way that copies his love for us. Second, our love should not just be, quote-unquote, feelings, but also it should be practical. Our, our love for others should be helpful and observable. People should be able to see it. And then thirdly, we are to love others even when others do us evil. So Romans 12 is about love, and then we get to Romans 13, and it starts off talking about government and authority. It seems like Paul has changed topics, but he hasn't. Remember, too, that when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, it was that. It was a letter. He didn't write it with chapter divisions and verses. Those were added hundreds of years later to make it easier to refer to specific passages. And Bible scholars have often wondered why in the world did whoever did make these divisions make them where they did at times. Now, the, Romans, the end of Romans 12 is dealing with Christians being persecuted, that is, others doing evil to Christians. And God's alternative to what our natural response is when other people persecute us, when other people do evil to us, our natural response is revenge. We're going to repay evil with evil. Well, God's alternative to our revenge is his vengeance. And by God's vengeance, I mean that justice is properly satisfied, which isn't what you and I normally think of when we think of the word vengeance. And so we have Romans 12 talking about love. We have Romans 13 talking about government. How does this talk about government fit with the command to love? Let's find out. Let's begin by reading Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. So follow along as I read. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now in these verses, Paul is introducing many important concepts. There is authority and government, the power of the sword. He talks about motivations, our motivations for obedience, and he talks about taxes. Well, let's begin by talking about authority, which can be understood as power to command others. And when we think of authority, you stop and consider God is the only person with intrinsic authority. That is, God is the only person with authority within himself. And God has this authority within himself because God is the one who created everything and rules over everything. This means that every other authority that exists is delegated. Now, you and I have all kinds of authorities in our lives. Parents have authority over children. Government, governments have authority over their citizens. At work, the boss has authority over employees. In the church, elders have spiritual authority over its members. But there's others. There are police. There's homeowners associations. There are teachers. All different kinds of authorities. And because they're all different kinds of human authorities, this next thought is very important. Because all authority but God's is delegated, this means that parents and government workers and church elders and police, it means that every person in a position of authority will have to give an account to God one day for how you and I use the authority that God delegated to us. Have you ever thought about that? And consider that probably the most common way that people have authority is parents over their children. We're going to have to give an account to God. Now you see a form of this delegated uh, situation in Genesis 1 when God delegates dominion over the earth to mankind. This means that as humans we do not have autonomous authority over the earth. That means you and I as humans don't have the authority to do whatever we want. We are God's stewards, and we're answerable to him. Well, in the same way, just as authorities are answerable, so governments have delegated authority and not autonomous authority. And even though this is true, through history, as you look at history and today, many people that are in positions of authority act as if they have autonomous authority. Well, here's the thing to remember. They will answer to God. And we saw in our catechism that Jesus is the one who's going to judge so in Romans 13 1 you and I are commanded to be subject to the governing authorities the English translation let every person be subject doesn't clearly convey convey that this is a command and it is now when we talk about obeying 
You and I can obey cheerfully, and we do at times. We can obey diligently, or we can obey reluctantly. I'm going to follow the letter of the law, even though I don't like it. Well, the idea behind God's command to us is that you and I as Christians are to be as obedient as we can in good conscience to all the various authorities that God has placed over us. So this doesn't allow for the half-hearted obedience or the grudging obedience or where I'm, yes, I'm following the letter of the law, but everything else I'm doing is telling you I don't like this and I'm rebelling. doesn't allow for that. Also, this idea of authority isn't new here in the New Testament. Go back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 12, which is the fifth commandment. We're told, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Here, honoring parents includes obedience. And yes, it is a command to children, but the principle applies to all authority. Then, in Matthew 28, we see that after Jesus' resurrection, God, who is the highest authority, gave all authority over to Jesus, authority over everything. And so when we look at this, it's clear that human authorities should be submitting to God since God governs ultimately. Now, there's much more that can be said about each of these topics we're looking at. We're just doing a little bit of an introduction. The next one, government. We see in our verses that government is ordained or instituted by God. Still in Romans 13:1, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is telling us that every authority, every government is in place because God chose for them to be in power. Now, this does not mean that God approves of everything that the authorities do. He doesn't. And we know this is true because all human authorities and governments are corrupted by sin, just like every other part of life is corrupted by sin. In the Old Testament, one of the prophets was the prophet Habakkuk. And it's a short book, it's only three chapters, and I remember going through it in some detail when I was taking Hebrew in seminary, that was the book we were given to translate. And the book begins with Habakkuk complaining to God. And he's complaining, he said, God, do you see your people? He's talking about the people of Judah. He's in Jerusalem. Do you see how they're acting? They're sinful, they're corrupt. He implies that the government is corrupt. He says, the law is paralyzed. Justice does not go forth. And to paraphrase, God says, no, I know. And I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to give consequences to my people, consequences that I'd promised. And oh, by the way, I'm going to use the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is almost speechless, not quite, because he still writes and talks. And he says, God, how could you? Yes, we're bad, but compared to us, the, the Babylonians are horrible. And God says, yes, I know. I'm going to use them, and, the, and they're going to bring these consequences that I've promised to my people, but I know that the Babylonians are going to do it in their arrogance and pride, and so I'm going to deal with them as well. And God does. Corrupt governments are all through time. And we're going to talk a little bit more about corrupt governments 
in just a little bit. Well, we come back to the fact that God is the one who instituted human authorities. So in verse 2, we're told that if you resist the authorities, you resist what God appointed, and there will be negative consequences. Consider this next thought. A government has delegated authority, and it has the authority to use force to compel its citizens to obey its laws. Let me say that again. A government has delegated authority to use force to compel its citizens to obey its laws. Now, some of those laws are positive, as in they're telling you things you must do, like you must pay your taxes. And some of those laws are prohibitions, telling you things you may not do, like stealing from others. We're going to talk more about force in a, in a few minutes. Two of God's purposes are to restrain human evil, and second, to pr protect or preserve human life and property. The first one is very clearly seen in our verses. The second one is implied. In verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his, his approval. When the verse says that rulers are a terror to bad conduct, that's saying that government restrains human evil. But how does the protecting and the preserving work? Think back to the Ten Commandments. The first four are talk about our relationship with God. The last six are talk about relationship between people. And in those last six, most of which are given in the negative, there is an implied positive. For example, in the command, do not steal, it contains the concept of private property. Stealing is taking what does not belong to you. So as governments restrain stealing, they're helping to protect the property of their citizens. One of the other Ten Commandments is do not murder. And as governments restrain murder, they're helping to protect the lives of their citizens. There's another piece that gets involved here when we're talking about governments, and that is that governments, by definition, when they have their laws, restrict some, and I'm putting this in quote, freedoms. For example, if a speed limit has been posted on a road, you are not free, again, put it in quotes, to drive any speed you want. When my family moved into the house we're in now, we saw that right in front of our house is a speed bump. And we talked to our neighbors, and they told us that the, the road that our house is on, which is a residential road, it's just lined with just houses, no businesses, anything else. It was used for years and still is as a shortcut. And people would speed sometimes 45, 50 miles an hour down the road. And so the county put in three speed bumps. One of them happens to be in front of our house. Well, that did deter some people, but not all, because I personally have seen people flying in front of my house, 50 miles an hour, hit the speed bump, and go airborne. Why did they put a speed limit of 25 there on that road in front of a house? Because it's residential. There are families, and there are people, and there are children, and all of these things. It's not safe to go faster than that. But that speed limit restricts a freedom. But other freedoms that some people would talk about are just evil like stealing, because all that does is harm others. Now, one other thought before we move on. When you look at verse 3, 
it says, rulers are a terror to good conduct. Verse 3 is more like a proverb. It doesn't mean that every government will support good conduct, what God says is good conduct, but it's more like every government should support good conduct. Now we come to force or the power of the sword. Verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, that is the government, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So here's one of two connections that I wanted to make to Romans 12. At the end of Romans 12, it was talking about others doing us evil, and instead of us trying to repay evil for evil, trust God who would bring vengeance, justice. And here's how God gets his vengeance. Here's how God satisfies justice. He does it through human government, through government and its laws and the force that the government exercises to enforce those laws. Now, the power of the sword includes all forms of force up to and including death. In the Old Testament, God decreed death as the consequence for sins such as premeditated murder. But that wasn't, you don't see that just kind of appear on the scene when God is giving Moses laws. You actually see a hint of it with Cain and Abel, and you see it very clearly in Genesis 9 when God is talking to Noah about blood and that the life is in the blood. So one of the forms of force is death. But other forms of force include fines, jail, revoking a driver's license, and other things like that. Well, why? Why is the power of the sword needed? Because of our sinfulness and our selfishness. You see, left to ourselves, we would naturally disobey. I am so glad that Paul included his kind of the self-revealing in Romans 7 about his own struggle. And to paraphrase, part of what he says there is, you know, I was doing pretty good, doing okay. And then somebody told me, you cannot covet. And then it was as if everything in me all of a sudden said, I've got to, I want to. And that's kind of our natural response. There's some laws, some directions from authority. We may say, okay, fine, but others we don't want to do at all. And so God has given government the power of the sword. Now that prompts another question. Is the power of the sword misused by people that make up the government? governments? And the answer is yes. At times, the people that make up the governments do misuse their power and their position. Sometimes they call what is evil good and what is good evil. But as they do, they're forgetting something, and it's in our verses. That God says that these people serving in government are his servants. And they're going to have to give an account to God at Judgment Day for their own evil. And that idea applies to all human authorities. And if you stop and think about it, if people really understood that we're going to give an account, here he's saying any, anybody in authority is using, that's using their power, we're going to give an account because it's delegated power. We would be terrified of our own evil, but people aren't. And if we're honest, so often we aren't. That's the blinding power of sin. The next topic, motivations for obedience, we find in verse 5. 
Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So one clear motivation for obeying the government is that you don't want negative consequences. But notice, the verse doesn't refer to negative consequences from the government, even though they may happen. It refers to God's wrath. Why? I'm here, I'm going to do what teachers sometimes do, stomp my foot, get this. When you and I disobey the government, by extension, we disobey God. Now, again, we have all these qualifications and what-ifs and things. Are there situations where we should disobey the government? And the answer is yes. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the general rule is you obey. Now, the second motivation is for the sake of conscience. So a Christian's motivation to the laws of the government, to the, law, to the direction of other authorities, is connected to our relationship with God. And God commands us to obey the governments because he's placed them over us. And so as I was writing this, I, I was sorting out, how do I say this? Our conscience is tied to our obligation. Now, I have to say, our, actually, our conscience should be. Because sometimes we kind of get so full of ourselves, I don't care what parents, teacher, government, whatever authority is, I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. And our conscience doesn't bother us at that point because we've already been practicing this, I'm going to do what I want to do. So it, it's, our conscience should be tied to our obligation to obey God because he's our creator and the ruler of the universe. And then taxes. You know, I have to believe that this was just as unpopular in Paul's day when he wrote it as it is today. God commands us to pay our taxes. Taxes support the government. That is, taxes support the people who make and enforce the laws. You see that in our verses. But I want to add one other piece. Taxes support the government that provides for common benefits like roads, and common defense, our military. And as I said, God calls us to pay our taxes. When Jesus was asked the question, even though they were trying to trip him up about taxes, his answer was, yes, you pay, pay to Caesar what Caesar is due, and you pay to God what is due to God, both. Now, even though we're commanded to pay our taxes, are we to approve of everything that our tax money goes for? And again, the answer is no. In fact, we shouldn't. If you have served in the military, if you've served in the government, if you've lived long enough to see some of the examples of how people in government have abused their position and used misused money, you'll see, no, you shouldn't be approving of everything. We are blessed by God in our form of government in, in the United States to be able to, to work to change what the government does if we don't like the way that the tax money is being used. Now, in verse 7, he, he addresses more than just money. He says, yes, you pay your taxes, you pay your revenue. Then he says, you also give honor and respect. Honor ties us back again to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and by extension, honor all authority. And then respect. Is every person who, who is in a position of authority, uh, in a sense, worthy of respect? By their actions, maybe not. By their office, position, yes, we are to show position, uh, uh, respect 
for the position or the office that the person is in. God, in verse 4, God says the government workers are his servants. So we are to show honor and respect. Now let me say here, it's not too often that you hear a sermon on government. So you may have questions or you may have comments that you're just burning to share. Email them to the church office. Be glad to start a dialogue and go a little further with this. But I have one other topic that I want to talk about, and it's pretty much one that I, I think I must talk about because we live in a broken world, a fallen world, because we're corrupted by sin, and that is civil disobedience. Our verses are clear in their direction. If we want to obey God, we're going to obey the authorities over us. That is clear. Recognize this. The command where we're called to be subject to the authorities means that we voluntarily place ourselves under the authority of another. It does not mean that we mindlessly do whatever the authority says, that we blindly obey. We shouldn't be doing that. Why? Because there are times where the government's law, the people in government, their laws, their decisions conflict with God's law. And God is our ultimate authority. He is our highest authority. And when there is a conflict like that, when that happens, we obey God and we take whatever consequences the, the government might give that God allows. Now, it's important, I think, for us to remember what government was in place when Paul is writing to the church at Rome. It was Rome. Rome was a government that took over other countries by force with their army and then forced those people they just subjugated to pay taxes to support the army that keeps them subjugated. Okay? Not a good, not a good system. Okay? Not a good thing. And that's the government. And Paul is saying, God through Paul is saying to obey them. Here's when you want to talk about when should we or should we not. As Christians, we are to obey the authorities over us unless they command us to break God's law or they pass a law that prohibits us from keeping God's law. When you look at the early Christian church, the first 300 years, they were noted by multiple sources, including Roman authorities, as being wonderful citizens. They paid their taxes. They worked hard. They cared for others. They were ideal citizens in every way but one. They would not worship Caesar as a god. We'll talk about what happened in just a minute. But recognize, too, this is not just a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament... In the book of Daniel, you have two examples. You have Daniel himself and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now think about, again, unjust situations. Daniel is a God-fearing Jew taken by the Babylonians when, again connected to Habakkuk, when the Babylonians come and he's taken off to Babylon and he ends up becoming a worker in the Babylonian government. But as a teenager, when he first gets to Babylon, he decides for himself, along with his three friends, that they are going to honor God and obey God in all that they do. And God blesses them, and he rises in, in position in the Babylonian government to being advisor to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Not just that king, but 
more kings, including the king of the Medes and the Persians that end up taking over the Babylonian empire, which was part of God's judgment on the Babylonians. And there were some men, when Daniel was late in life, there were some men very jealous of his position, of his authority and everything else, and they tried to see what they could find. They couldn't find any dirt on him anywhere that they could use to kind of get him taken out of his position, so they decided to do a trick. And they convinced the, the king to sign a law that says nobody could pray to anybody else, any god, any person except the king for 30 days. And he signed it, silly man that he was. And because, again, you see the arrogance of people, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, once it was written and signed by the king, that was it. It could not be revoked, even by the king. And so Daniel hears this law. He does what he's done for decades. He goes home every day, and he prays in front of his window where other people can see him, and he's praying to the one true God. He gets arrested. The king tries everything he can to get Daniel out of it, but he can't. And so Daniel ends up in the lion's den, and God protects him. The, the guys that were doing this whole thing to try to trick him and get rid of him, they ended up dying. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go back to when Nebuchadnezzar was king. He, in his arrogance, decides he's going to have a statue built and have everybody bow down and worship him. And everybody does, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse. And God protects them. So what you see in the Old Testament, in those two examples, is you see happy endings. But you look at the early Christian church back, again, under Rome, when they refused to, uh, to worship Caesar as a god. Some of them died. Some of them had all their property taken. So that's why we, we say if the law of the land uh, conflicts with God's law, you follow God and you take whatever consequences may come. And it's up to God and his goodness, again, why we talked about his character in the, in the prayer confession. God's good and cares for us in, in all of these circumstances. Let me finish with the second way that Romans 13 connects to Romans 12. Romans 12 is about love. Romans 13 is about government and obeying the government. You and I love God by submitting to the authorities that God has placed over us. And you and I also love our neighbor by obeying the authorities that God has placed over us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for giving us governments. We thank you that you are ultimately in control because we recognize, all of us, that we are broken and sinful and sometimes we mis if we have authority, we misuse it. We thank you that your spirit works in us more and more that we can follow you, and that if we have a position of authority, we see it as a position of service, to serve you, to serve others that you've uh, put around us. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we navigate these times with unprecedented uh, directives that we've had for staying and sheltering in place and all these other things, would you speak to us and direct us? We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond with a song. <clears throat> All authority belongs to